Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Welcome to Commons Conversations, a series of interviews with campaigners sharing their experiences and insights into activism, learning and movements, and more. Program is broadcast by Community Radio 3CR and produced by the Commons Social Change Library, a website containing over 1,000 resources for campaigners, which can be accessed for free at commonslibrary.org. This week's interview is with Laura O'Connell Rapira, the former director of Aotearoa Digital Campaign Organisation Action Station and former executive director of movement building at the Foundation for Young Australians. In conversation with Common Social Change librarian Holly Hammond, they discuss the importance of putting shared values at the heart of campaigning and other work, as well as the significance of contributions by youth and First Nations to social change. Laura also reflects on assisting people to work across difference in terms of background, life experiences and approaches to social change through the creation of meeting and organising spaces where people can show up as their full selves. Hi, welcome Laura O'Connell-Rapira to Commons Conversations. Uh, Great to be spending some time with you and hearing about your insights and experiences in campaigning and organising and movement building. Laura, can you introduce yourself however you would like to? Um, Thank you for having me here. Um, Yeah, as you mentioned, my name is Laura. I am queer Māori INFP, um, Libra Sun, Cancer Rising, Leo Moon, which I feel is like essential when one is queer, must bring in our um, astrology charts. I'm a community organiser, a campaigner, a writer, currently living on Wurundjeri country in Nam, so-called Melbourne, so-called Australia, um, and originally from the lands of Taranaki and Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, Laura, I've, you know, followed your work. We already have materials in the Commons Library that are either by you or based on things you've presented. And what really shines through is how you act from your values. And I wondered, as part of introducing yourself, if you want to share some of the values that guide you and where that came from. I used to be the director of Action Station, which is the sister organisation of um, Get Up and lots of other organisations actually around the world who use digital campaigning um, and kind of a multi-issue approach to movement building um, that is member-led to generate action, harness energy to create change. And um, I was at Action Station for seven years. So from when we had kind of a mailing list of 200 to when we had a mailing list of 400,000 people. When I uh, took over as the director, one of the things that I wanted to do was move us kind of away from being a member-led organisation towards being a values-led organisation. And I mean, our team were looking around the world, our board were looking around the world and uh, at that time, I think like Brexit was happening, Trump had just been voted in, and we were kind of reflecting on whether or not majoritarian democratic ways of doing things where, you know, people vote on a direction that you're going to go in and then um, and then you follow that direction was indeed the best pathway for us to achieve liberation and justice. And we thought perhaps not. And, and so what we decided to do was look to Indigenous ways of um, being, doing and knowing within the context that we were operating in. So in Aotearoa at that time, Moana Jackson, who is uh, very uh, dear to many Māori people's hearts. He is a constitutional lawyer, writer, a thinker. 
um, and has just done a lot for our people. He and Margaret Mutu, who has also done a lot for our people, had led a participatory process where they travelled around the um, country speaking to 10,000 Māori about what they hope, what we hope, Aotearoa will look like in 2040, because at that time it will be 200 years since the Treaty of Waitangi um, will be signed. And so that's the kind of document that allows for um, settlement within Aotearoa from non-Māori. As part of that process, what became very clear was actually what is important is that um, if we are going to achieve a kind of harmonious society in which everyone has what they need to thrive, then the decisions we, na- we make need to be guided by values. And um, in the case of Mātiki Mai, this process, those values are Māori values. And so what we decided to do at Action Station was respond to a recommendation that came out of that process that was led by Māori for Māori of Māori in which they um, explicitly said, if you are part of uh, groups or communities um, of non-Māori, our recommendation to you is that you follow a similar process and talk about what your values are and talk about how the world will be different if we live by those values. And so as an organisation that had a majority non-Māori kind of community and membership, we decided to run a process where we um, brought people together from different backgrounds. Um, We kind of created these host packs. It was a form of deep organising, deep and distributed organising, where we created host packs where anyone anywhere could download a conversation pack and decide to host a lunch or a dinner or a breakfast or whatever. The food part is quite important, we realised and thought, because it's kind of a, you know, breaking bread is an ancient tradition that we've done for a long time. I think lots of revolutions have started over kitchen tables, but also it helps make people feel comfy and dreamy, which is really important when you're talking about values in, in the future. And so 500 Action Station members hosted lunches, dinners um, to talk about what are the values that need to sit at the heart of our society and our decision making in order to have a fair and flourishing future for everyone. And so what was really interesting about that process is that Action Station members, by and large, chose Māori values to be the values that need to guide us if we're going to get to the future that we want. And I think that makes a lot of sense because we're essentially picking values that come from the land. And I think everything starts and ends with the land. Some of those values are manakitanga, which is kind of the idea of um, a person isn't necessarily going to remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. It's the act of uplifting someone else's inherent dignity and worth. It's also the act of being generous and um, in your hospitality without the expectation of anything in return. So it's making sure that when people come to your spaces, they have a good feed, they feel really comfortable, you cater to all of their access needs, you've made sure that they feel valued and heard and understood and all of those sorts of things. Another example of a value from the Māori world is kaitiakitanga, which is the idea of looking after those things that we treasure. It's often used to talk about lands and water, but it can also be used to talk about each other and our children and our babies and ourselves. Another value that guides my work is wairuatanga, which is the recognition that we are inherently spiritual beings um, and that we are connected to each other and also to the earth. And it's about honouring that when we come into a space, we aren't just bringing our physical being, but our spiritual being as well. Um, And recognising that with us in every room that we come into, we are bringing our ancestors and our histories and our lineages with us. And so it pays to be respectful um, when talking about other people because you're not just talking about the person that you see in front of you, but you're talking about all of the people that come with them and came for them. Thanks, Laura. That's really powerful and just really strikes me that that was a deep process and it connected to values that had been alive for, you know, 
hundreds of years, thousands of years. And, you know, when I think about organisations in the progressive or civil society space, often there are values that the organisation holds, but, you know, not to such a depth. And you kind of see organisations can get knocked off their path, whether that's to do with funding or political situation or conflict that goes on within the organisation. So I don't know, do you have any advice to organisations that want to be more values-led, you know, is it a similar process? Are there other ideas? One of the things I really love about Māori values and the way that they're phrased is that they always end with tanga, and tanga is the is a verb. It's the act of making it live. Um, and so one of the things that I think that is really important is that our values can't be just words that we put on a wall. They have to be things that we have translated into practices that are shared between the people who are upholding those values. And so it's really about creating a culture in which people know, live, breathe, act by, and in accordance with those values that you have decided upon together. And I actually think it makes decision-making easier in many ways, easier and harder. And I'll give you an example. So Action Station um, has a community petition platform, um, and we offer this to people to be able to turn their ideas into action to change policy within councils or corporations or government. The idea is that as long as the petition ask aligns with our vision and our values, then we will support you to turn it into a campaign. And so we often have people starting petitions with us. And in one instance, there was a person who started a petition, which was grounded in the idea of democracy and participatory democracy, which is a value that our community holds as being really important. The idea that the people who are impacted by a decision should be involved in helping to make that decision. However, in this case, the petition ask was to stop the felling of imported trees, so non-native trees, on a sacred mountain that had recently been returned to the people of those lands. So the hapu, the kind of clan, the people of those lands, Tangata Whenua, had, um, as part of a treaty reparation process, had the sacred mountain returned to them. And they had a long-term plan to cull, I think it was around 180 exotic trees, and they um, wanted to, over time, plant 13,000 native trees. So they wanted to replant these, um, they wanted to return this, mountain, um, their ancestral mountain, to the way it was prior to colonisation. So it's a very long-term plan. It's driven by Māori sovereignty. It's driven by people of the land making decisions about those lands. And this person lived in that area, loved these imported trees, went for walks on this mountain often, and they'd started a petition to say our community were not consulted about about this decision that the Manafina and the people of those lands were making. And so in that moment, we had competing values coming up. Um, which was, do we centre Māori sovereignty in this or do we centre participatory democracy in which everyone affected by something gets to have a say? And because we had decided as as a group, as a team, as a movement, that to us Māori sovereignty is absolutely central, the decision was made not to support that petition to become a campaign. And, you know, we pointed them in the direction of other tools that they could use if it's something that they wanted to take up. We also suggested they try to have conversations with the people of those lands because often you, I think sometimes in the campaigning world, we skip the conversation part and jump to a campaign and it's not always necessary. Uh, But it wasn't in alignment with our values. And so it um, simultaneously makes the decisions easier and harder, easier in that it's very clear about where we prioritise putting our energy and harder in that um, you have to let some people down because it means when you choose to be values-led and not member-led, 
it, it does mean that um, some members in your community aren't necessarily going to agree with the decision that you end up making and that's the trade-off. That's such a great example of competing values but the kind of process of considering the options and working it through and being guided what's by what's been decided and that differentiation between member-led and values-led I think it's really um, important one. Thank you. So after several years of great work with Action Station, you moved to Australia and you moved to working for the Foundation for Young Australians as their Executive Director of Movement Building. And I wanted to hear from you, you know, what do you love about youth movements and why are they so essential to progressive and radical change? I just love young people. I think they're so brilliant. They have um, so much energy and creativity and passion and imagination. And I I just really believe in young people's power to radically transform the world. And I love the work of helping young people see that they have that power in themselves. And in particular, the reason I wanted to move into kind of movement building work that I consider to be a bit like slower, a bit more long-term, a bit more relational in juxtaposition to the work I was doing Action Station, which is kind of very rapid response digital campaigning that's focused on kind of mobilizing um, energy, is that um, I guess I was interested, and just to be clear, I think both of those things need to exist. I think um, we need those methods of of change and more um, all of the time to kind of achieve all the things that we're wanting to achieve. Um, but I, in particular, wanted to move into capacity building with with young people because I, if you're looking at the the colony here and the colony at home and the way that population demographics are shifting, we we are living through a time where our um, both like there are something like more than 100 different ethnicities and languages in both Australia and Aotearoa. And in the Aotearoa context in particular, we um, know that by 2040-2050, Pākehā, which is um, New Zealanders of British descent, going to be in the minority for the first time in a couple of hundred years. And so this is the world that young people are going to inherit. I am interested in contributing to leadership programs, training programs, capacity building programs that build the skills of young people to work across difference, be led by their values, to find shared values with people who are different than them, um, to build collective power with them in order to move forward into a kind of more harmonious future Because I think one of the things that um, capitalism and colonialism thrives on is its ability to divide and conquer us. And I think when we allow ourselves to be divided, we unfortunately allow the status quo to continue. And we end up in a lot of kind of infights and fragmentation, you know, people going off in different directions. And one of the values that is really important to me is kotahitanga, which is the idea of working across difference um, towards unity. It's a kind of way of recognizing that at the core of it, we are all humans who need connection with each other, connection with the land, connection with our histories. We need to feel valued and loved and understood. We need to be respected. Every human needs these things. And I guess I was interested in working with young people to build those skills because I saw that there was more energy um, from young people to want to build those skills. So one of the programs that I've been working on at FYA is called Collective Imagining, which is bringing young people together from different backgrounds, different lived experiences of systemic injustice to engage 1,000 young people from across the continent to um, in processes of imagining the future and then to commit to working together to bring that future to life. One of the number one skills that the young people who are taking part in this program have asked us to 
prioritize is healthy conversations, conflict resolution, and mediation. And I just think that's such wonderful foresight to know that these are the skills that we are going to need if we're going to bring about a peaceful, nonviolent society um, in which people see each other as humans first and, and labels and um, identities and all of those things. Sounds like an excellent program, imagining, collective imagining. And uh, in terms of this working across difference and recognising the skills involved, are there good examples, do you think, that people can look to and go, oh, right, if we want to get real about this work, you know, these folks are showing some direction? A couple of examples from our from the Collective Imagining program, and I'm speaking from the positionality of a person who's um, facilitating spaces and, you know, coordinating um, or, like, developing curriculum and programs um, to build these skills is that I think often what happens is people who are organizing events is we organize an event, we kind of maybe do a little bit of consultation on what we think the agenda needs to be. And then we, you know, maybe put out a survey before the event and then we put and then we do a survey after the event. And, and it means that we as the kind of paid organizers or the or the even just like the people who have the most capacity to organize these things are the only people being exposed to the conversations and the feedback. And I think um I think that's useful. I think we should have multiple channels of feedback um, in order to enable people to um, contribute their thoughts in ways that feel safest and best for them. But at the same time, when when we rely on um, a kind of core group of people being the only group who's who is privy to that feedback in those conversations, we lose um, an opportunity to facilitate a discussion about, for example, competing access needs, um, which I think is is something that um, uh, that does require negotiation when you are building across difference. And so. Um, two examples of that from this program is that we have a very high number of trans and gender diverse young people. And so we made a decision as organisers to turn all of the bathrooms in the space that we're at into all gender bathrooms. And then it transpired throughout the event that actually for some of the young Muslim women in particular, all gender bathrooms were deeply uncomfortable. And so they um, asked us to put in place some single gender bathrooms. And so we responded and we facilitated a conversation about why we were making this change. And it's essentially to cater to the wonderful gender and cultural diversity that exists within our community. Another example is that we have quite a high number of young people with neurodivergence who have sensory overwhelm, particularly around sounds and smells. And at the same time, we had uh, an Indigenous hip-hop dance group who required as part of their, their teachings to have quite loud music. And so what we had to do in that, in that instance is just ensure that we had quiet activities alongside these kind of louder activities. And so it's really just about being in relationship with and facilitating conversations with people about what it is that they need to show up to these spaces and to keep returning to these spaces and to feel like they can contribute meaningfully to these spaces and then working it out alongside them. So I think those are some of kind of the, that's manaki tanga in action. That is, you know, making sure that people's mana, their dignity, their inherent worth is respected and upheld. And then there's kind of the more like um, interpersonal stuff, which is, you know, people, when you bring people who are passionate about changing the world, who have diverse lived experiences of systemic injustice into rooms and spaces with one another, you simultaneously have kind of, I guess, intergenerational traumas and complex traumas and um, individual traumas coming into that room but you also have intergenerational power and um, individual power and so I think one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot is how do we facilitate conversations in which we invite people to see the strengths that we each bring to our movements and not just the kind of 
where we center our ability to heal ourselves, each other and our worlds rather than our trauma. And I think in the youth sector in particular, there is a kind of hyper-focus on trauma-informed care. And I think that's been useful up until a point. But I would say that it is time for us to be informed about the trauma and focus on the healing and the power of um, bringing people together to do the work of healing. What I mean by that is that when we are kind of existing in a world that is very focused on our traumas and our in our deficits, which is the case for most of these young people. Um, you know, you pick up a news story about First Nations people or young migrants or young refugee background people. A lot of the time it is focused, it's very def- deficit discourse, which kind of erodes your belief in yourself. And it's very difficult to, to pull yourself up to believe in yourself, first of all, and then to believe in your ability to change the world, to create a different world. That's just, you know, the odds are stacked against folk. And so one of the things that we want to do is we want to center healing and strengths because it's just a more sustainable form of advocacy um, because it it allows us to focus on our strengths and our power and to bring that to the fore rather than our traumas and our deficit. And it's not to say we don't talk about hard stuff. It's just to say that we bring in that kind of balance of things uh, because we because we do, and these young people do, have a lot of strengths and a lot of power to bring to the table. One of the ways that that looks is that um, when we had the most recent collective imagining gathering, rather than we as the core organisers, um, you know, deciding all of the agenda, we held an unconference. So an unconference is a kind of format where you just have time slots and different rooms that are available and you talk about what's in those different rooms and then you allow the people who are coming into the space to populate the agenda. And so... We had, I think, 34 sessions that ran. 30 of them were led by the young people themselves. And they were everything from like what it means to sit at the intersection of queer and POC to uh, how we can act in solidarity with women in Iran to uh, frolicking and laughing in nature. You know, there was kind of something for everyone. And then there was like speculative fiction, how we can write ourselves into the stories of the future. And I think when we allow ourselves or we allow um, space for creativity and, I guess, participatory movement building rather than relying on a, on a small group of people to, to kind of populate everything, it just means that you create the conditions in which more people can bring more of themselves to the work, which means that you, you just have more difference that comes out through that. And so you lose a bit of control, which I feel like a lot of the time in the NGO space there's a reluctance around losing some of that control because we're worried about funding or because we're worried about branding and all of that kind of stuff. And I think one of the reflections I have is when you let go a little bit of the control, some really amazing magic can come to the surface. Every tale when you live in hell. Trust me, that's a story I know very well. Bad weather, no umbrella, it gets better. Seen it with my own eyes, uh. Money and job, you ain't got one. How you gon' raise my godson? Adoption, I know that's not an option. Your baby mama watching. Other girls and their husbands, they whip cribs and kids. That's how a family functions. We face obstacles, that's not cool, but you got to choose what's best for you. I see you trying to better yourself and trying to better your health. I see you getting closer yeah, yeah. every day. Got your super understanding, what the master plan. Another hand, I'm pushing through the storm, being better than I am. When I make a bigger stride, I was trying to push me down. Man, I'm bigger than the image and the fans. Vision is precision, I can see right through the brands, see right through the smoke. Life is not a joke. When I finally drop my mask, my mirror, it almost broke. I was told the storm would go away. Darkest times, I pray for better days. Ayo, ayo. Dip it up, dip it up to sunrise. 
you got choose to feel Lately, don't know how to feel Don't know what's fake or real So I get my mental straight Write my problems to the pencil Break therapeutic If it puts me in a better place I gotta do it Instead of losing myself I found music Real talk I've been down and out And I'm back now You can't count me out I never back down And that goes to anybody with problems I Get help and maybe we can solve them Nakunili that the ripple left at war CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. You're listening to Commons Conversations on Community Radio 3CR. Before that announcement, you heard Better Days by Baker Boy. In today's program, Commons librarian Holly Hammond chats with Laura Connell-Rapira former director of Aotearoa Digital Campaign Organisation Action Station and former executive director of Movement Building at the Foundation for Young Australians. I wouldn't have just noted some of the stuff that you said earlier about accessibility and just recognising that accessibility is like not one size fits all or a thing that you do once. It may mean negotiation and kind of working out what access means for different people and connecting with that more difference may mean less control but there's so much positive that comes from that creating a space where people can show up as their full selves just a few thoughts around youth organizing and just kind of conscious of our ageist society that really impresses young people and it's kind of set up that as young people age each year they get a little bit more privilege until they move into adulthood you know and there's a sort of sense of like leaving behind your young years and it happens too in youth organizing where we might have an age where people age out of being involved in a campaign or an organization and sort of they graduate as we were talking before about uh, people being led by Maori values and the importance of that 
you know, I really think like our whole movements need to be able to be led by young people or responsive to the leadership of young people or inclusive of young people in those positions of kind of pushing forward. Do you have any thoughts around, you know, how adults can be more effective allies to young people, how they can make space for young people's leadership and support that? Yeah, I had this really beautiful conversation with, um, so we're working with this organisation called Murray Matters, which is a... um, First Nations um, organisation that runs a process called Nguri, um, which is around being led by your values. They're from the southwest of Queensland, and we're working with them to facilitate a space in a, in a couple of weeks, actually, for senior leaders from um, youth movements and um, NGOs who work across First Nations, racial, disability, climate, economic, disability justice, as well as trans and gender diverse um, kind of queer liberation. And so what we're having a conversation um, about, you know, the space that we're trying to create together. And we're talking about this exact thing, which is what it means to be an adult or an elder showing up in some of these spaces. And I think Scott articulated it really beautifully as um, we want to find adults and elders who know how to hold space rather than take up space. And I think that's what that's that's what our role as adults and elders within these movements and spaces is, is how do we create spaces where young people can build the confidence skills uh, connection to first believe in themselves then believe in each other then believe in their vision and then believe in their skills and their abilities to bring that vision to life by working together and I think if if more of us can do that we will be surprised delighted about what it is that young people can achieve Um, at the same time I think one of my critiques of the kind of youth sector is that um, it is a little bit westernised, this worldview. Like one of the things that has happened, I think, and I think the United Nations has played a big role in this, is that the whole sector has kind of moved to this child-centred focus and that, you know, the programmes that we de- develop and deliver are focused on what's best for the child. And, you know, that um, ideology has been taken so far that in both Australia and Aotearoa, it often means removing children, um, Indigenous children, from their families. And I would argue that from a from a Maori worldview anyway, that it is much better to think about being whanau centred, to be focused on the family and the extended family. And of course, in the Maori worldview, um, which I imagine is similar to many First Nations um, communities here, whanau doesn't just mean those to whom you are immediate. It's not the nuclear family. It is your aunties, cousins, un- you know, uncles. It's your, um, it's your hapu. It's the other whanau who live in your area. And so I think we always want to centre young people and make sure that their their needs and aspirations and dreams are kind of at the heart of what we're doing. And at the same time, we also want to create movements in which there is intergenerational connection, there's intergenerational knowledge exchange. We are cognizant of the fact that the young people that are in our programs and in our spaces have families that they're connected to. And that's also an access need that if you're a young person who is from an oppressed community, often you are doing the most. You have, you know, um, family obligations, you have community obligations, you might have church obligations, you have school and all of those sorts of things. And um, and so it's a lot to say, hey, young person, come into the space. You're going to change the world. Instead, I think we need to say, hey, young person, you're awesome. How can I walk alongside you as we change the world together? We kind of need that nice balance of making sure that we're being led by the young people, but also supporting those young people to be led by their elders, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, That makes total sense. And it kind of emphasises for me the importance of intergenerational dialogue. Where are those held spaces where people can hear each other and it's 
deeply respectful. I think in a lot of workplaces, there's sort of set up hierarchies of that who has control and who gets to have a bigger say. Many other spaces in our society are, you know, are dominated in that way. I know uh, I heard about years ago in the US, they did like a dialogue process for activists, younger and older activists, where there'd been quite a lot of misunderstanding, like there was some different politics, people bringing different experiences to things, they were doing their activism in ways that were kind of mashing up against each other. And yeah. so they paired people up to, you know, do quite deep listening together and build relationships. And I never really got heard what the outcome of that was, but I was like, oh, wow, imagine if we were able to do more of that. Yeah. In general, I would say that a key movement skill all of us need to be practising and supporting and nurturing in ourselves and each other more is that ability to be in deep dialogue with one another, to truly listen to where a person is coming from, um, to try and understand their perspectives and Yeah, if I think about like so many of our social movements um, throughout history, there's often this kind of fragmentation that happens between people who want to take a kind of more radical approach and people who want to take a more reformist approach. And um, and I think sometimes it's a shame that our reform, the folks who are working in reform aren't working with the people who are kind of at the radical edge and vice versa, because I actually think that if we look at those those histories, what we see is that both methods were needed every single time um, and that actually a lot of people who are working within reform spaces are radical at heart um, and they're just um, they're feeling like where they're putting the energy into is is into um, is into reforms and um, and that they're useful there right and at the same time the folks who are um, working kind of more radical approaches to change or, or are very out and proud and loud about their radical demands are feeling like all of the resource and the energy and time is being pulled into the reform spaces. While all of that is happening, we are not necessarily seeing that we share a lot of the same goals, a lot of the same values, and that there are ways that we could potentially bring some of those strategies together and then we could move forward faster with more kind of momentum because we're working from a place of kotahitanga, from unity. I think there's obviously negotiations to be had within that. Like I know if we take an issue like abolition, for example, the, um, you know, the 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 work towards abolishing prisons and um and dismantling police forces there are certain reforms within that area that actually continue to uphold the prison industrial complex and so there needs to be conversations within abolitionist movements about what reforms are we willing to accept on our pathway to to radical transformation of the of the justice system and then if we go beyond the abolitionist movement i would say that you know there's kind of two competing movements that we've seen happen um, uh, or have huge growth over the last kind of five years, and that's the Me Too movement and the abolitionist movement. So the demand to kind of defund police and then the demand to hold people to account for um, sexual harm. And at the moment, a lot of what we envision as holding people to account for sexual harm is reliant on criminalisation. And so as long as we have these two competing movements who are both growing in power and momentum um, and airtime, but who aren't necessarily talking to each other about what their shared vision for a world um, in which when harm occurs, there is accountability, but what does that look like outside of the current punitive 
penal system, I fear that, that neither movement will get very far. And so I think that ability to have conversations within our movements and then across our movements is absolutely essential to the vision that we're trying to achieve. And that makes me think about, you know, connecting to people around values and vision. You know, it's a relational skill, you know, and it's taught in relational organising in terms of having going and having relational meetings with people being a kind of core tool to use. So I think there's some hopefulness in the fact that lots of people are learning that skill and applying it. And also uh, for the Commons Library, we find Bill Moyer's Four Roles of Social Activism is just always one of our most popular resources. So I think there's a hunger amongst people to make sense of how do I work alongside people who have a different approach to social change? How do we navigate that difference? How can our efforts add up to more impact through kind of understanding that? One thing I would say is that um, if we're committed to doing that work, it does require us to slow down, to speed up. You know, it requires commitment to moving at the pace of trusting relationships. Movements can only move as fast as the trust within them. And what I find time and time again from being involved in and connected to a lot of different movements is that it's the relationship breakdowns that happen within movements that actually end up stifling our momentum, putting barriers up in front of us. And so I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on is how do we um, shift some of the big players and smaller players within this sector, within these movements, to a place where we agree that this work of slowing down to speed up is really important because it requires a shift in the way that we structure our organisations, a shift in the way that we develop and deliver our strategies, a shift in the way that we do funding and the strategic cycles we operate to. It does actually require a kind of rethinking and reimagining of the ways that we do things if we're truly committed to, to doing things in ways that move at the pace of trust. But at the same time, if we did that, I think we would find it would actually be more efficient and we would move much faster in the end because we wouldn't be having so many breakdowns that prevent us from going forward. I agree with you, but I do think it's like fundamentally challenging to activists to slow down. Like yeah. many of us carry a lot of urgency and kind yeah. of for good reason. So um, that's always the thing in the climate movement. I feel like it's like it's going to take us time to get where we need to go, except we needed to do it decades ago and yeah. how we kind of struggle with this time thing all the time. Yeah. So as you're saying, kind of recognising if we do it right, we slow down, get some stuff right, we actually will be able to achieve more more quickly. Absolutely. And, um, and you're right. Like it, the issues that we are talking about are urgent and people's lives are being impacted right now. In West Auckland, where I grew up, there are huge flash floods happening right now. There are people who have lost their homes. We're seeing that all across this continent as well. Like the climate catastrophes are here and now and affecting people in our backyards that we know it's absolutely the case that these issues are urgent and at the same time what does it mean when we're organizing from a place of panic and urgency all of the time and I would say what it means is that we are creating movements that rely on charismatic individuals who are often operating at superhuman levels to do the most often or like all the time um, but also uh, we are creating a culture of burnout I struggle to imagine how we can create a peaceful just loving world if we ourselves are not peaceful loving and just um, in the way that we treat ourselves and each other um, as a person who has been you know, pushed to the front in a lot of these movements that um, did a lot of work at Action Station in that rapid response, urgent mobilization way of thinking. 
I know that it can achieve change and I also know that it's not sustainable and that the change that it can create is important, but potentially not as enduring as change that's created by mass movements of people working um, together um, to create those changes. Definitely. So, uh, yeah, I'm conscious that you've had experience working on activist projects in your home country of Aotearoa, but also in Australia now, and you spent some time in the UK uh, working on different projects too. And also like through Action Station, you've got that, you had that connection with the Open Network with a lot of international organisations. Yeah, I wondered if you wanted to share things you've noticed about different campaign cultures in different countries. You know, are there strengths, weaknesses, blind spots, innovations that you see you know, lessons to take from one place to another? I think one thing that's really interesting about Australia and the UK and Aotearoa is that in all of these places, we exist within what is described as the not-for-profit industrial complex. And so what we mean by that is that um, uh, a lot of the kind of grassroots community organising and movement building that might have been done by like nannies and aunties um, back in the day, just in their, on the side of whatever it is that they're doing to keep their babies and children happy and thriving and all of that kind of stuff um, has now been absorbed into institutions, um, legal entities that are often funded by government. And that has created a lot of good in Aotearoa and my understanding is, is, is here as well is that it's created, um, you know, um, in Aotearoa, Kaupapa Māori services, so services that are by Māori, for Māori, of Māori, and here in so-called Australia, I know that it's also contributed to the creation of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, so it has been effective at shifting literal resource, literal money um, towards institutions and organisations that are led by and for First Nations and Indigenous people, which I think is is a good thing. And at the same time, that shift towards government-funded not-for-profit organisations is that it means that we have lost a degree of independence and uh, freedom that comes with not relying on funding from an actor, the state, who is often trying to work towards the demise of Indigenous peoples. And so I would say that we're kind of in this phase of like self-administration rather than self-determination meaning that the government still gets to decide who gets the money. So they're the people determining um, where the money goes, and then we get to administer the funds as not-for-profit organisations. One connection I would see is that we are all existing um, in all three of those um, countries that you mentioned uh, in some form of the not-for-profit industrial complex, which results in an over-reliance on paid um, staff and over-reliance on strategies that rely on paid staff um, and an under investment in building the capacity of volunteers and community members to do the radical work of movement building and um, and shifting hearts and minds and creating change in the world. Um, it also results in a kind of, I would say, dampening or um, a, a, a dimming of um, some ambition because funding often relies on us not being too ambitious. And so an example of that is Action Station. We worked with a group of 40 organisations that worked in um, supporting survivors of sexual harm and, and, and domestic violence. And one of the reasons that they wanted to work with us was because we were politically and financially independent. And that just meant that, for example, at select committees, which is where a group of MPs host um, discussions where you as a member of the public can come and speak to a particular issue that they are potentially making recommendations back to the government on around how to change a law or how to change a practice or a policy or something like that. 
um, when there was a select committee submission, there was the version that some of these organisations wanted to say to the MPs, and then there was the version that they did say because their funding was at risk. And so they would give us a copy of the version of what they would rather say, which is usually we need you to give us more money because these women, largely, are volunteering their time to do really hard work because you are failing as a government to meet the needs of the people that you you claim sovereignty over or jurisdiction over. And so I think, yeah, I, I would say that that's one of the challenges that we share across these different areas. And I think that has a huge impact on the cultures of the movements and the organizations and the, and the um, spaces that are often driving progressive change forward. Um, in terms of like the opportunity, I would say because we are similar in our experiences of colonial capitalism, it does mean there is so much opportunity for sharing our knowledge and our lessons and our insights. And one of, I say this often, that I truly do not believe Action Station would have been able to build the membership that we did, change as many policies as we did, build an organisation that employs, you know, a number of people if it wasn't for the radical um, commitment to sharing our knowledge across borders, um, across 19 different organizations that are all working towards creating change. That's why I love the comments, you know, it's about sharing what it is that we know, knowing that we will get further, faster, better if we um, support each other not to make the same mistakes. And so that's everything from like this fundraising email worked really well. We found that when we tested the green button instead of the red button, it resulted in significantly higher numbers of people signing our petition. Um, but also things like when you're meeting with the, an MP, we found that, um, you know, bringing a person with lived experience as well as a person who has um, deep knowledge of the policy that's being discussed is the right combination of things to effectively lobby within that space. We tested these two different, you know, articles that we placed in a news media article and we found that this one got significantly more shares than the other one. You know, all of that kind of stuff really, really helps because we have a lot of people who want to create change, who are um, coming up with the same ideas that have already been tested and tried in other areas. So what does it look like if we just learn from that, adapt it to our context and then and then share back uh, in a kind of uh, a sense of mutual aid and reciprocity. So I think, yeah, the challenges are similar, the struggles are similar, but then so are the solutions and the methods. Uh, so you're moving on from the Foundation for Young Australians and you're offering your significant skills to strengthening movements as a freelancer. I noticed in your call out you said, I'm interested in working on projects that align with my values and work towards abolition, land back, global Indigenous solidarity and sovereignty, climate and disability justice, trans and queer liberation, decolonisation and the downfall of capitalism. To which I say, hell yeah, a great mission statement. Um, <laughs> is there anything you want to share about, you know, those struggles or your, you know, what you're doing next? I named these struggles in particular because I think one of the byproducts maybe of a kind of Western worldview being dominant, which is, in my view, quite focused on hyper-individualism and not necessarily collectivity, is that sometimes what happens is that our movements splinter into silos. Um, and I would say that those silos are kind of the institutionalized version of individualism. And I like to put all of these issues or co-popper would be the word I would use in my language together because I 
I, I see them as deeply connected. And my experience from organizing largely in multi-issue spaces is actually humans, the people we're organizing and mobilizing with also see them as deeply connected. People may have the issue that they are particularly passionate about and will do a lot of work towards, but people can simultaneously care about ensuring that our rivers are clean and swimmable for people and that, you know, uh, Indigenous people can gather food from those spaces if that's a practice that they've had in those spaces. And they can care that people from uh, refugee backgrounds are getting um, into safe housing. And they can care that, you know, people who are wheelchair users have access to the things that they need to live happy, fulfilling lives. Like people actually care about all of those things. And that's because what they actually care about is their values. And their values are healthy, happy people and a healthy, happy planet, right? And so to me, I guess I see those things as deeply connected and if we take something like land back and abolition, for example, which I know is um, are, are causes that a lot of Black and Indigenous people are very passionate about, if Indigenous peoples are getting land back, then we can choose to stop prisons being built on those lands. We can choose uh, to um, use the economic base that comes with owning land towards ensuring that we have good income, good mental health services, good, safe, secure housing, which stops the kind of vacuum that is created by the state of sucking people into the, the prison system because it fails to meet their needs in the education, housing, and mental health systems, right? And so those things are, like, inherently connected that if we achieve land back, it also means that Indigenous peoples can go back to being the kaitiaki, the caretakers of those lands, and those lands can begin to heal, which is a form of climate justice. And if that land was returned, then it would also allow for people who are currently displaced from those lands to return home because you can create a base to be there. And if we imagine that people are returning home, it means that we are creating local economies, caring economies, and those caring economies are often women who are doing the work, women and trans and non-binary folk who are often doing the work. And if we create caring economies in which those people are remunerated, is that the word, for that work, that's gender justice, right? And so all of these things are deeply connected um, to one another. And I think that what I'm interested in doing is working across these different movements and uh, in both a voluntary and paid capacity because I've still got rent to pay and all that kind of stuff, but I do want to make space for working with people who can't afford to pay you to do this work because I often think there's where a lot of the revolutionary thought and work is happening. But I'm interested in working across these movements and across these different co-pop and, and issues because I want to help the people form the connections that I have had the privilege of being able to see by being in positions where I get to work across issues and across movements. Um, because I think if more of us can see those connections between our struggles and solutions, we can become an unstoppable force. And I think just on numbers alone, we kind of need to. Thanks, Laura. Um, so great to spend some time with you and, and hear from you, all these excellent insights and really wishing you all the best with your next steps and Viva the Revolution. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 
3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. You've been listening to Commons Conversations on Community Radio 3CR. You just heard an interview with Laura O'Connell Rapira. Today's program was produced by the Commons Social Change Library, a website containing over 1,000 resources for campaigners, which can be accessed for free at commonslibrary.org. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nesssolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. <laughs>